Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. All right. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to be in the Old Testament. Happiness. All right. As Christian says, so great to uh, see everyone today. Great to have you at Church in the City. And uh, we started last week a five-week series in a little four-chapter book we like to call Ruth. In the Old Testament, if you turn your pages too fast, you'll skip right by it. Uh, but we're gonna we're gonna camp there again today and for and for the next month after this. And I I kind of want to say you know welcome back to the Old Testament where the names are unpronounceable but God's character is still faithful and unchanging. Uh, it's a great great place to be. And and I just want to start off with just a reminder whether you were here last week or not. Uh, just about not just the value but the unspeakable fullness of the Old Testament. Uh, the purpose behind the Old Testament. I, I think a lot of times if we're really, really honest with ourselves, uh, we're, we're kind of all about the New Testament. And we kind of let, we're, we kind of see the value in the Old Testament, but we, if we're really, really honest, we're like, well, I'm kind of intimidated by it and I don't really engage it that much because really we're in the New Testament. But I don't think that allows us a full picture of the heart of God because as we, as we talked about last week, we need to be in the Old Testament because it's real stories about real people who really knew God, who really had triumphs and failures, really made choices that were honoring to God or weren't, and had consequences, and followed after God with all their heart or didn't, like you and I, and in his full and maximum wisdom, by the Spirit, the Father has seen fit to put the Old Testament right here for you and me in the Bible. So just from that perspective alone, it's worth us being in there morning, noon, and night. Is that good? We're okay with that? So it's purposed. It's purposed. And, it, and it, one of the things that, that we also talked about last week is that we, it doesn't mean that we approach everything in the Old Testament the same way that we approach everything else. You know, there's all sorts of types of literature in the Old Testament. There's history books, there's narratives that are, that are full-on stories. There's books of the law that God gave to his people. There's prophetic books, poetic books. There's, there's, there's historical accounts that have a lot of narrative in them. We, we, it's not like we're, when we open up Ruth, we're opening up one of Paul's letters. They read differently, they were written differently, inspired by the same spirit. Uh, but we just need to, we need to be aware of that. Even preaching... On the Old Testament, from a narrative story standpoint, feels different than preaching out of Ephesians. Where it's like, wow, in Ephesians, you're like, every verse is like, okay, let's unpack this theology for like the next hour. If, if I could, you probably wouldn't like me. But in the Old Testament, it's much more, in a, from a narrative standpoint, how we're going to spend time on the story. And then see what the Lord is saying through the aspects of the story. So let's just real quick, not to belabor the point of, of the Old Testament, but let's remind ourselves uh, of, a, of great ways to approach the Old Testament. We need, we need to equip ourselves to approach it. What I was just talking about is, is kind of know, know what we're looking at. This is a story. This is a story. So we're going to read it as such, and we're going to engage it as such. If it was a prophetic book or a historical account or a law account, we'd, we'd go into it with that knowledge too. Uh, I think that's only wise. We're going to not abandon... Good exegesis. What is exegesis? Big fancy word for studying what the Bible is actually saying. What the original writer meant for the original hearers to get. That's, 
I don't know why that word is called exegesis. I probably should as a preacher, but it's, it's called exegesis. But we're not going to abandon good exegesis and get intimidated. We're going to remember that God is unchanging. His character is sure. It doesn't matter which side of the cross, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter how God is dealing with his people, whether it's in a covenant like the Old Covenant or now in a New Covenant. God's character is unchanging. So we can approach the life of God with confidence in the Old Testament. We need to give ourselves grace and give ourselves patience as we approach it. And let's, let's stumble through it. Let's read the story. Let's, let's, let's work through it together. And I think finally it'll end up being ridiculously exciting. At least that's what I found because I love stories. And I think we all have a soft spot in our heart for stories. If we're honest, you can be honest. So speaking of stories, because we're dealing with narrative, remember last week we talked about the story muscle, and I described the story muscle as something that we use all the time. You already do it. And it's the, it's the innate clues and senses that we, that we kind of plug into that give us an idea of the context of a story, the stakes of a story, and how we automatically drop into it as a culture. You already do it. We watched like three minutes of of starting and stopping of movie trailers, you know, and remember the, within like five seconds of watching the Gladiator trailer, you, you kind of could, I could ask you 15 questions about the story and you'd know how to answer them. Not necessarily that you know what happens, but you know how the flavor of the story is going to be. And they had changed to Gone with the Wind and it's like completely different paradigm shift, but your story muscle was working to catch that. You already do this. It helps us accurately and uh, experience the story. And I want to submit to you that in addition to the story muscle, because we're not studying all of Ruth in one Sunday, we're studying Ruth over time, I think we're going to have to activate our memory muscle as well. Not to be cheesy, I'm naming muscles. Story muscle, memory muscle. You already do this all the time, too. Uh, it, it's, it's the ability that you have to let a, a story compound over time and not get it all at once but marinate in what's happening in the story. And the next time you engage the story, it actually, what you've let yourself remember, helps you engage the story and experience it more accurately and more fully. Here's what I mean by this. How many of you have ever watched a whole season of a show on TV? Come on, put your hands up. You don't have to tell me which show. 20, isn't it like 27 or 28 by now? Um, it's, it's, it's what happens over the course of time in a season. Your show comes on when, or you DVR it and, it and you watch it when. Not all at the same time, unless some of you binge and that's fine. But the context of the story and what happens in the story compounds over time. And the watcher or the experiencer of the story that you were in the first minute of the first pilot episode is not the watcher and experiencer of the story that you are near the end of season one or, or even more so season six or seven. You're like in the groove of the story then. They just have to like show a picture and you know what's happening. That's what I mean with the memory muscle. It, it's, it's another, it works with the story muscle. It's just you fall right into it. You get how to access a story. Um, and this is simply what we need to do as a family with Ruth over the next month. We're just going to remind ourselves. We're going to keep coming back to the character of God. Keep coming back to the circumstances of the story. Keep coming back to the characters and the choices that they made. The way they've chosen to honor God and obey him or disobey and then repent or act in faith. And we're just going to let that compound. 
And I don't want that to be, again, I'm not belaboring these points, but I just don't want it to be intimidating for us to be like, well, how am I going to, this is the Old Testament, it's rough, I can't pronounce anything, and it's a story. It's a story. Did you guys um, ever grow up watching Rocky and Bullwinkle? Yeah. Just cartoons today, they just, they just need a moose and squirrel, you know what I mean? But one of my favorite things about watching Rocky and Bullwinkle, I, I used, uh, I'm five years older than my brother, and I'm 10 years older than my sister. So there was a time when, like, I was 12, 13, my brother Ben was, like, eight or nine, and my sister's, like, two or three. And one of the traditions we had is we would get to watch uh, Inspector Gadget. Come on. Go, go, Gadget, preach. No. Uh, <laughs> we get to watch Inspector Gadget, and we would get to watch Rocky and Bullwinkle, and then MacGyver would come on after that. And I'm sorry, dude. As an 11, 12-year-old kid, it's just like, how did you make a helicopter out of a paperclip? That is unreal. But Rocky and Bullwinkle, I always loved because they did such a good job. I wouldn't have been able to dis- explain this then, but they did such a good job of compounding the story and making me, as a 12-year-old, not be able to wait to get back to the story. And do you remember what they do at each one? Every Rocky and Bullwinkle episode would go like this. Rocky and Bullwinkle are going about their life, just like mooses and squirrels. Moose and squirrels, they hang out. What are you going to do? And do you remember the villains, Boris and Natasha? <laughs> Boris and Natasha. It's moose and squirrel. No. And every episode would end with Rocky and Bullwinkle in an incredibly precarious position. And this ranged from hanging off a cliff to being like baked into a cake or other things. And every episode would end with the narrator inviting you, almost daring you to join us next time. And they would give like two possible titles of the next Rocky and Bullwinkle episode. Like, which one's it going to be? So it's like, will Rocky and Bullwinkle make it off the barge into the Mississippi River? You know, whatever, whatever's going on. Stay tuned next time for, for Whom the Southern Bell Tolls or Sweet Home Capagamma. I don't know. It's just, they would just be so ridiculous. And that memory muscle would just be pumping and the story would just compound. And honestly, I don't really see a difference or why there should be a difference in the way we approach a narrative story in the Old Testament. It's the reason why every time you watch a show, what do they start with? Previously on Mad Men, you know, and it reminds you. Well, so we're going to be like previously on Ruth. Maybe not in that voice. <laughs> so let's, so let's remember, let's, Let's, let's access our memory muscle. And let's, let's talk about last week for just a second. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I need to fly. We're going to fly. We're going to fly. Not physically, but preach, preachingly. Ruth 1 through 7. The Lord your God, 1 verses 1 through 7. Remember we talked about the Lord your God remembers you. So remember the Lord your God. Let's take a look at some of the circumstances. Remember, it was the days when the judges ruled. Remember those days? The days when the people of Israel were walking away from God. They would experience calamity. God would allow judgment to come upon them. Then they realize, oh, what have we done? They return to the Lord. He would bring blessing. And then they just kind of lather, rinse, repeat, and the whole cycle would start again. These are the days we're talking about. And the Bible says at the end of Judges, there was no king in Israel, and all men did what was right in their own eyes. Not happy times to be. And we talked about Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, who were from Bethlehem, who had experienced and grown up there and experienced the faithfulness of God, and they made a decision in the midst of famine, and they moved to a place called Moab, which historically had been an enemy of Israel, and they made a disobedient choice to go there. And they settled there, and they had sons who married Moabite wives, which was explicitly forbidden in the law of Moses. 
And they're making disobedient decisions. And then Naomi finds herself, Elimelech, her husband, having died. Her two sons, Malon and Kilion, have died. And Naomi is left with no husband, no sons, and two daughters-in-law. And we talked about this is a bad situation for a woman in that time with no male family and no male protection because of the societies that they lived in. And then what does Naomi hear? She hears that the Lord has returned and come to the aid of his people in Judah, and the famine is done. That's where we are. And she determines in herself to set her path back to the land of Judah. And, and from the surface, seems to be making a pretty repentant choice. I'm going back to the land of promise. I'm leaving the land of compromise. I'm going back to the land of promise. And we're going to dive a little more into what's going on in, in Naomi's heart in just a few minutes. So that's where we are. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, the two, her two daughters-in-law, are setting out back for the land of Judah. So let's pick it up, and I'm going to read Ruth 1, 8 through 22. It's going to be right behind me. Now, it is a little chunky. It's going to take like three PowerPoint slides, so just relax. Go get some water or something. If you No, but let's follow the story, okay? Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home, and may the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to your dead and to me. And may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to two sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than it is for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Happy times in the land when the judges ruled. Last week, we kind of went back into the passage and we highlighted a few key contextual points. And rather than doing that today, what I'd like to do is let's take a look at these three women, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, Ruth, and see what their perspectives are and their resulting actions to the story. Because I think we can glean a lot from how each of them approaches these difficult circumstances. Uh, let's start with Naomi the matriarch of this 
little clan here. Uh, Let's just ask some simple story questions. Let's start with, where has Naomi been? What, 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 what's her recent history? Well, we know that she grew, she's from Bethlehem. She, we know that she came from a place of experiencing God's faithfulness there. And they made a decision and she went to Moab, where she's now been, remember, from the first part of chapter 1, for, for 10 years. And she's lost her husband and she's lost her two sons and she has these two daughters-in-law. And, and then at the end... When she hears about the Lord's work in Judah, we start to see a little bit of a semblance of repentance, it it would seem, in Naomi's heart in saying, well, all right, I'm going back to Judah. I'm returning to the the Lord's land. But I think what we're starting to see as we look more at chapter 1 is a touch of creeping bitterness coming into Naomi's heart. It's one of those things, bitterness, you know, is one of those things that bubbles to the surface and in our unguarded moments kind of comes out what we're really thinking or maybe that's only happened to me. Please understand, I'm not making light of Naomi's hard circumstances. I'm not making light of a woman in her situation having lost a husband and two sons. But she's also made disobedient choices. And we've also seen God's grace ridiculously pursuing his people, coming to, the, to their aid in Judah. And Naomi, even now, is still not excluded from, from entering into that. So we do see a pursuing grace on the part of God. So let's ask another simple story question. What's going on now? What's going on now? Well, in verses 8 through 10, it says, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home, and may the Lord show kindness on you, as you've shown to your dead and to me. And may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So what Naomi is saying to Ruth and Orpah is, Actually, you guys stay here in Moab. I'm going to go back, but you guys stay here in Moab. And it seems, it seems a really nice sentiment. Like, don't worry about me. I'll be good. You guys hang. It's been real. These are her daughters-in-law. It seems like authentic concern. But then in, I think if we look in verse 11 through 13, uh, I think we start to see that creeping bitterness come in again. It starts to deteriorate into bitterness. When Naomi makes statements like, am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Even if I had a husband tonight, would you wait for my two sons that I would have by that husband to grow up? We start to see the real state of Naomi's heart in verse 13 where she says, it's more bitter for me than it is for you, Ruth and Orpah. Why? We've all lost our husbands, but the hand of the Almighty has gone out against me. Wow. These are two Moabitesses who don't know Their only experience of Yahweh, the God of Israel, is what they've heard from Naomi and Elimelech. And this is is Naomi saying, you don't want to go back to the land of my God. His hand has gone out against me. And again, I'm not making light of her circumstances. But in verse 15, when Orpah's already made the choice to stay in Moab, what does Naomi say to Ruth? Your sister-in-law has gone back to her land and her God's. This is huge. Remember we talked about last week that in the ancient Near East, where you were was very much tied to the deity that you served. And in, God had given his people a promised land. It's not, just, it's not just a property dream. It's a place. And other nations around them had gods and ways that they served their gods, the false gods. And, and Naomi's saying, your sister's gone back, your sister-in-law's gone back to that. And honestly, I think that's a good idea for you to do too. It's God's fault where I am. So return to your gods. This is best. 
I would submit to you guys, I'm not trying to be hard on Naomi, but I think this is starting to be evidence of a bitter heart rather than an actual repentant, repentant heart. And you can actually see it's not actual concern for her daughters-in-law. Verse 18 is where Ruth starts her plea, that beautiful plea of where you go, I will go. Where, where you stay, I'll stay. Uh, let anything but death separate me and you. The Lord will deal, deal with me severely. Those are, that's such an impassioned, beautiful verse. It's, I'm, I kind of want to like frame it and put it up on the wall. It's so beautiful. And what, do you guys catch Naomi's reaction to that? It, th- does the Bible say that she, that she fell down and wept and thanked Ruth so much for her wonderful sentiment? Uh, she, oh, I'm so moved by what you just said. No, it says exact words. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Oh, well. I mean, don't shower me with gratitude all at once there, Naomi. It's, this doesn't honor Ruth. So let's not get an, a romantic idea, actually, of what's going on here. Naomi's not happy with Ruth. Why? Because Naomi gave up on Bethlehem, God's promised land herself. And even when she takes Ruth back, she doesn't acknowledge her to to the women who start asking, is this Naomi? There's a shame involved in here. And then she, she, Naomi, unfortunately, descends into the same bitterness with the people of Bethlehem as, as, they, as they start whispering about her back. And she says, don't you call me Naomi. You call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. So after 10 years returning to her home and probably more extended family, Naomi says, don't you call me who I was because I went away full. God's brought me back empty. You call me Mara because because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. No repentance, no saying, my circumstances have been hard, but I have disobeyed the Lord. And God has wooed me back with his grace that I can still stand here with a daughter-in-law who loves me. Please, again, I'm not trying to be hard on Naomi, but I do think we we need to dive into what the story is saying. So I think Naomi's ultimate response to... To all, this, to all these circumstances is, begrudgingly, I'm going back. Fine. How many of you, like me, have ever had obedience in body and not repentance in spirit? <laughs> oh, just me again? No. Man, we can be there so quickly and so easily. And I think what, what we can take specifically away from Naomi is that sometimes, whether it's by our circumstances or even by our disobedience, God, in his grace, allows us to be emptied so that he can actually refill us more authentically with him. Refill our lives with him and him alone. This is actually an outworking of the grace and faithfulness of God. Naomi standing back in the place, Bethlehem in Judah, of the promised land, having made it back there, is actually an amazing picture in the moment of the faithfulness and pursuing grace of God. She's back you're here. I've, retur- I've returned to my people and given them food, and you're back. That's just not the flavor of, of her heart. It's been wooing Naomi, and I won't spoil the rest of the book, although it is available if you'd like to read it. But, but there's an awesome work in Naomi's heart throughout the rest of the book as well. No spoiler alerts for me. <laughs> Previously on Ruth. Sometimes by our circumstances or disobedience, the Lord will allow us to be emptied so that he can fill us more fully. Let's take a look at Orpah. 
Anybody, every time you see that word, think of Oprah? Oprah was in the Bible. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, Let's ask the simple story questions again about Orpah. Where, where has she been? What's, what's, what's her recent history? Well, we know that she's lived her whole life in Moab. And we know from that time what that means, that she's followed Moabite gods. She's, she, she has pursued those false gods. We're not going to hold that against her. She grew up in Moab. And she married one of Naomi's sons. We don't know which. Uh, but, but so she married an Israelite son. And now, like Naomi, she is a widow She's got a sister-in-law, Ruth, and a mother-in-law, Naomi, with no immediate male protection. And initially, she is going to set out and return to Judah with Naomi. That's, that's Orpah's immediate circumstances. So let's, so let's take a look at what's going on now. Verse 10, as we said, initially she's going to go back to, to Judah. It says, it says we will, Ruth and Orpah are saying, we will go back with you to your people. We're going to stick with you, Naomi. But there's a difference, there's a difference for Orpah than there is for Naomi. Orpah is still young. Naomi is talking to Orpah about, wait, 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 wait. You, you can still have a husband. You can have this do-over. This is a reset button chance. Me, I'm old and busted. This is never going to get better for me. I am, I, I'm going out to Judah to eke out the rest of my miserable existence. You don't have to do that. You can go back to your parents' house. You can get another husband. You're still young. It can be ultimately 50 years from now like none of this ever happened. Orpah has something really to risk here. She really does. Will we agree on that? There's real risk here. And Orpah's convinced by that argument. And in verse 15, says, oh, sorry, it's in verse 14. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. And we don't hear about her again. Unceremoniously out of the picture, back to the land of her gods. Now again, my heart is not to be hard on Orpah, but I think her ultimate response was, I'm out. I'm out. I have an out. It's very wise. Seems practical. Even you, Naomi, are saying that this is what I should do, and I'm out. Awesome. I've seen the future, and it's mine. This is a decision not, not only based on physical circumstances. It's, it's based on physical circumstances. And, it's, and I don't think initially that we should be too hard on her. Because it's not really, practically speaking, that foolish of a decision. Right? But who knows how it turned out. Maybe Orpah went back and lived out the rest of her days. Awesome. Found another husband. Maybe more calamity happened. We don't know. But I do know this. What I think we can take from Orpah, and this is as much as I think we can take from Orpah, is if we only factor in risk, our future, and what we control, we will not act in faith. We won't. If you're only looking at the on-paper practicals, and it's not unwise to look at those things, but if it's all we're considering, if we're nailing them to the wall and it's the only perspective we're taking, we're not going to act in faith. And if we don't act in faith, God is not going to pin you down and force you into you letting him leave a legacy for you. Because his kingdom is going to move forward and he's going to do it. God is not, it doesn't, we don't read that Orpah went back and God sent a tornado and wiped her and her family out. God's not forcing you into a legacy. He's offering but not forcing. And faith-filled decisions, having heard God, are the foundation of a legacy-leaving life. 
That's all I got on Orpah. She's, she's done. Is that cool? <laughs> it's kind of unceremonious, and I wish it was, I wish it was g- more grandeur than that, but it's really not. If we only look at the practicals, we won't make decisions of faith. And now the moment you've been waiting for, Ruth. <laughs> Let's take a look at Ruth. I believe this is the turning of the book of Ruth. Here, I believe that, I believe that up to this point, we as story readers, story experiencers, can rightfully ask, all right, is this going to stay about Naomi? Who's this going to be? Is this Ruth? What's going on here? This is the moment when it turns and the rest of the book is Ruth. And I think we're going to see why. Let's ask the same questions. Where's she been? What's, what's, what's been going on? It's honestly the exact same as Orpah, right? She grew up in Moab. She served Moabite gods. She married one of Naomi's Israelite sons. And now she's a widow with a sister-in-law and a mother-in-law and no immediate male protection in not a good situation. And Naomi is setting out to Judah, and she has a choice. But just like Orpah, Ruth still has a future. There's still a risk here. Ruth is young. It's the same exact situation as Orpah. To say, I can go back to Moab, to my parents' house, and I can find myself a husband, and this can be like it never happened. So that's where we are with Ruth, too. So what's going on now? Naomi Ruth is experiencing Naomi's urgings to be like Orpah. She's saying, be smart. Use your head. Don't get this wrong. This is not hard. How many of you ever felt that way about a decision? But there's just that turn of, of not having peace, that you're not acting in faith. And Ruth, like Orpah, is put in the position of making a decision for her future. And what does verse 14 say about how Ruth is doing in making that decision? Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth said to Naomi, "Ah, no, I think I'm still going to go with you. No, Ruth clung to her. You will drag me where you are going. Ruth clung. That is it. That's a covenant word. That's a relationship word. Now, let's look at Ruth's decision here, because this is huge. Like I said, this is the turning of the book of Ruth. Ruth's decision, it may look like she's following Naomi, and I know there's a lot of romantic notions. Naotians? Wow. <laughs> Welcome to Church in the City. We're going to be in the book of Ruth today. I'm kidding. There's a lot of romantic notions about this book. And I think it is a beautiful, beautiful book. But again, let's not make this what it's not. Ruth is not following Naomi here. Look closer. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Sounds great. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. This is a very clear choice that Ruth is making. This is not a Moab or Bethlehem choice. This is not a my parents' house or stick it out with this old and busted widow who thinks she's, she's done. This is, this, is a, this is a change of homeland. And a change of homeland is a change of heavenly allegiance. This is a huge decision for Ruth. Ruth's faith is not in Naomi, although she's committed to her. Her faith is not in Judah, although she's going back there. Her faith is in the God of Israel. If it, if it wasn't, if, if she has not calculated that, she does not make this choice. She doesn't. I mean, come on. That's how Naomi interpreted Orpah's choice. She's gone back to her home and her gods. Yeah? Sorry, I'm shouting at you. I really like you all. This is a brand new spiritual identity for Ruth. It's a brand new spiritual identity. By changing homelands. It's an understanding that God, the God of Israel, is the one in, into whose hands she's placing her future. Not Naomi's. Come on, who's Naomi? What's she going to do? 
Really? Because honestly, if, if, if it's not God and it's Naomi that Ruth is following, she's a fool. She's a fool. Right? What are you going to do? Go back to Judah with her? It's a beautiful picture, but it's not just that. It's a powerful choice to place faith in the God of Israel. And even this choice is not celebrated by Naomi. Oh, I stopped urging her. And then when I get back, everybody's like, is this me? And Ruth's standing right there and she doesn't even say anything about her. But Ruth has no doubts about the object of her faith. Her faith is not in man, but it's in God. And I think Ruth's ultimate response is, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. What I think we can take from Ruth just briefly is saying yes to God. Saying yes to God allows his work to explode in, in our lives. We're going to see in the next few chapters the way God's work just explodes into Ruth's, lives, into Ruth's life. It's not because God writes romantic novels. It's because the faithfulness of God is supreme. And when our faith is in him, his work explodes in our lives. And, and, and can I just say, I know that this is a circumstantially huge choice for Ruth in this moment. I'm not making light of that. I mean, she is changing. She's literally making her life's choice decision here. But it actually is just the first small act of faith that's going to break everything open. We don't, can, I, can, we just, can we just step out of the mindset for a second that every choice we make because to us the circumstances are huge and maybe they might be but that every choice we make we have to like ace the exam of heaven just say yes to God it's not like well I don't and and please I'm saying this as much to me James you don't have to sit here and be able to knock down the next 10 dominoes of how all this works out because it's a big choice if your faith is in God make the faithful God honoring choice and 10 dominoes down the road, we can look back and celebrate. How many of you have been in that position where you look at where you are now and you go, man, I can look back over the last 10, 15 years, maybe longer of my life, and there were some moments when I was up the creek or I didn't know, but I just felt the Lord, and as I listened to him, say that this is something I needed to kind of push on and go this way and make this decision, and I acted in faith, and man, I am where I am today because of that. I don't know where I am. But I think many of us can trace um, the amazing work of God back to initial moments of faith. God, Ruth doesn't say, your God will be my God, and I'll meet a guy, and we'll settle down, and I'll glean in his fields, and this is going to be great. Spoiler alert. She doesn't say that. She doesn't say that. Her faith, her faith and sureness are in the God of Israel. And so she's making this choice. If, man, if our faith, is, God is so faithful. If our faith is in an unfaithful God, that's folly. It's folly. And we don't need to work out every possible angle with God because we know he's faithful. We don't need to fear that God is going to drop us or be like, oh, shoot. I've, oh, man, I forgot you over here. Oh, look at the mess you're in. Wow. Let's, what are we going to do? We laugh at that picture of God because it's false. I think that's the simplicity of what Ruth did. It's a huge circumstantial choice, but it's not in Naomi and it's not in Judah. Her faith is in God. And we're going to see 
the rest of this book, how God explodes his work into her life. And that faithfulness just increases in a way that, in a way that can only be written by God and has to be in the scriptures as a picture for us. Just as we bring it to a close, I think, I think for us today, in 2014, I think the greatest reminder of God's faithfulness for us is in the gospel. I think the greatest reminder of God's faithfulness to us is in the gospel. That God the Father has been faithful and gracious and pursuing of us through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, illustrated perfect communion and relationship with the Father, never sinned, had no reason to ever be separated from God the Father, yet took on the separation of death on a cross on our behalf and paid the penalty that you and I owe for our sins. And then God in his magnificent power and wisdom raised Jesus up from the dead to to now sit victorious over death, over us, as perfect, perfect revelation of the Father. Let's just sit for a moment. <laughs> the, the, the questions of God's faithfulness for us have been answered. They really have. They've been answered at the cross and they were answered in the gospel. And still today, our response to God's faithfulness needs to be our faith. Remember, faith in an unfaithful God is folly. No one's asking you to do that. <laughs> Please don't hear me say, we don't know about God, we don't know about his character, but God's just really great to have faith in him. Nobody's asking that. We know about God's faithfulness and our response is faith. And God's response to our faith is always his faithfulness. And I hope, I hope for our sake that that stirs our faith. It stirs mine. It stirs mine when I look at the decision Ruth makes and I look at the faithfulness of God to us in the gospel. It stirs my faith. And I, I almost get nervous to the point of like, Lord, what, what kind of work are you doing? <laughs> but you're good and you're faithful. Is that okay? It's an awesome story coming up that's going to continue as we see the faithfulness and grace of God in the life, in the life of Ruth, in the life of people we haven't even met yet in this story. I want to give just a, just a, a quick opportunity to respond to the faithfulness of God, if that's, has been stirring in your heart. And, and firstly, I just want to say, if maybe you're here today and that, that first moment of faith has never happened, that first initial placing of faith into Jesus Christ has never happened. And I want to say that today is the day to do that. And I just want to invite you, if that, if that is you, just for everyone just to close their eyes for just a moment and just to think on the faithfulness of God. And if, and if that is you and, and that you've got, you've got questions or you've got a desire to, um, to say, yeah, I place my faith. I place the control of my life. I place the identity of my life in the person of Jesus Christ. And I just want to say, don't leave today before that, before that occurs. Come up. Come up and speak to one of us. We want to talk to you about that. And for those of you who do know Jesus Christ, I, I believe the Lord wants to impart something of a fresh stirring of faith, something of a, a fresh revelation, a fresh reminder of God's faithfulness to us. And if that's something that it's, it's, not that, it's not that necessarily God hasn't been faithful, but sometimes I think we forget his faithfulness. And we start to conduct our lives as if that's not there. 
And whether, whether, whether you just would like a fresh stirring of faith or a reminder of God's faithfulness, would you just take a posture of receiving, whether that's standing or extending your hands? I just want to pray for you. Because I just think a life lived without dependence on the faithfulness of God is just not a life of faith. And what a life of faith can be when the, when the work of the Lord is exploding in our lives. So let me pray for you. If that's you, Lord, we just pause and thank you so much for the picture of Ruth and the, the, just the story that's told here of your faithfulness. And Lord, I just pray right now, just a fresh measure of faith. Lord, I thank you that all questions of your faithfulness are answered. That in our heart of hearts, we don't need to wonder about your faithfulness as our Father. But instead, Lord, we can actually be so bold and risk so much and be so courageous and literally stick our neck of faith out for you. And so, Lord, would you just remind hearts, would you remind hearts of your faithfulness? Where we've forgotten your faithfulness of the past, would you bring it to memory? Where we struggle with your faithfulness in the present, would you open our eyes? Open eyes right now in Jesus' name to your amazing faithfulness. And where we struggle with placing our faith in you and in those decisions now and in the future, Lord, I just pray that you would bring peace in Jesus' name. Bring such a sense of faithfulness that you're not leading us astray. You're a good shepherd and you're not leading us to calamity. I pray for such a steadfast assurance of that, Lord. And I pray right now the courage and boldness of Jesus over these hearts. And I thank you, Lord. We celebrate even now, just like Ruth could look back and celebrate, moments of faith and, and, the, and the characteristic of your faithfulness. I thank you even now that we, we, can, we can place our flag in the ground in these moments and look back to them and say, God is faithful. And I can't believe the work he's done. It's unspeakably wonderful. And my faith is in him. And I'm so glad that I made decisions that were risky, but were faith-filled. That were wise, but filled with faith. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. For how complete it is in the picture of Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.